1: With deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gum drop lips, cotton candy thighs, you're my candy.
0: Welcome everyone to podcast 57. It's the month of August and the end of another summer is almost at hand. And so tonight we bring you a sprinkling of
2: some surfing songs. Uncle Frank, what else do we have? Another H.P. Lovecraft sinister story, for one thing, and some tidbits of interviews with the original cast from Star Wars.
0: We also have some interviews with more Bigfoot ciders, and a great lecture on the
2: theater organ from a Heartland pizza parlor. And our discussion on the movies that should no way have been good, but amazingly were. Plus more stuff, of course. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started.
1: Well, I'm a hillbilly super and I'm straight from the hill. I come to California now to get me some thrills. Down at a dirty baby, she's as sweet as a peach. They said, Come on, honey, let's I go to the beach. You're going surfing, California style. we headed for the beach in a '34 Ford. Stop by the joint and then I got me a. I said, for heaven's sake, I take a gander at that great big lake Going surfing California style My finger in the door. Well, I hopped up and down like a dog with the rag. She said, mm, baby, you're a-doin the match. You go and I got a doin' the mash. You're goin' surfing a California style." Well, the surfers on the beach they thought I was square. They didn't like the way that I comb my hair. Well, I fixed my hair and man, I Look at me now, I'm a hangin' vibe goin' surfing. California One day when she gets her thrills, take my baby move back to the hills, we'll rest a while, California style, we're gonna rest a while.
3: them walk as such. The only movement I saw was when they made a very quick short dash uh, to get behind the limbs of the trees. I saw them move all right but in a humped up stooped over position just moving across the rocks mm-hmm. and then they ran and at, the the- uh, at the end they made a a, a real quick behind the limbs. Were they upright there? They were upright then. Uh, what did the baby do? I wasn't certain that I remember, but it seemed to me that the, the mother picked the baby up on her lap, ran with the baby, ran with it. the baby in front of her, yes. Possibly right below the breast, and the breast hangs real low, much lower than on a human. They were sagging. Uh, I didn't think so. I think they just come out. I yeah. was under for the human is here. I was under the impression they are here. They're both much lower than the human. Half of the depth of the chest part yeah. out. Uh-huh. Did, uh huh. Did how thick would they be through the body? That would be an awful good question. But they were very heavy fat. I mean, where the human is fairly flat. Would uh, be be flat? Like that? And no, they are definitely a very heavy thing. Possibly, possibly that would be why I thought the breast was there. Possibly that was the heavy chest. I don't think so, though. But they were very heavy and the uh, impression I got from what I saw of them mostly was uh, the thick, heavy, small of the back, and on up through the, the back through the ribs. Did you have any idea of how tall it would be? I think the male was over six. But I'm awful poor judge of height or weight of anything. But the female—I didn't think was quite as tall as the male. In fact, I don't think she was. as up to the shoulders. But I saw them standing up so little I was not i uh, didn't know. Uh, but they were much larger than a human they were bulky they are a very heavy heavy thing how about the baby it the that. baby didn't come up to the to the uh, mother's hips actually I don't think but I don't remember for sure uh, I just saw them as they as they were the first time I saw them standing up was as the Male stepped out of the, the hole he had dug with the grass but it was only a very short while until they uh, took off i didn't see them other than that how did they eat uh they t- ate but taking it in their hand and just uh, as if we were there was one of us eating a banana, that ate its skin, feathers and all, just bite it in two. And, uh, as he would bite part of it, will then crown the other right on in. And, uh, the little one, though, he had a little more difficulty because it, he couldn't, it didn't have quite enough room for all of it. Or the older ones did. But they didn't, uh, it, he had to get his. It wasn't like a human would hand the, the food to the baby. He was scratching through the grass that they had and got got it himself. And the female done the same thing. They they give you the impression in that way of being a, of not of not taking care of the baby like like the people would and got the food out and he was allowed to eat it, but he, he had, had to get, get his own. Yes, he had to get his own.
4: It was end of the summer months when the berries got ripe and there was always blackberries and that kind of stuff that grew wild in southern Illinois and my mom always canned and made pies. So she asked us to go berry picking with her, and I was the only one that said I would go with her. So we got our buckets, and we went out, started outside not too far from the house, which was, well, to start with, the place was probably a good two and a half or three miles off the main highway, back into the woods and towards the timber down a gravel road and down a gravel lane. There was only our house and one other house that set up probably a half a mile in front of us, away from all the trees. But we sat next to the trees. At one time, there had been loggers back there and they had left old equipment and stuff sitting up and down the little dirt lane. Anyways, we went berry picking and we started out fairly close to the house. And we started picking berries Well, the more... The further we went, the further we got up towards this bluff where all the trees and everything was at. And not even thinking, we just kept picking berries and having fun That somewhere with my mom. So we kept picking berries. On up the hill we went, slowly up the hill, getting berries, berries. And I said then, I said, Mom, do you think we got enough berries? No, she said, let's get a few more. So we got a few more berries. And by then we were like up this bluff at the top of the hill where the trees and stuff started and all that really deep into the woods. So we put pick and berries, and we got up there because I said mom and said we started to turn around and go back because she said it was we had enough berries. So I didn't know it but mom had already saw it before I saw it. And we started walking and every time we'd take a step I'd hear this crunch in the leaves. And when I'd stop it would stop. And I said, Mom, do you hear that? She said, oh, it's just the rabbits and squirrels and stuff. She said up here that's making the noise in the leaves. Don't be worried about it. Just turn around. Keep going. Don't look back. Let's get home. So I started, took a few steps. I could hear this crunch, crunch. I'd stop. It stopped. Mom said, don't look back. Just keep going. So I didn't listen to my mother. I turned and I looked back and I could see down at the bottom of this, from the opposite way we got to the top of the hill. And I could see this thing walking along there. And it was huge and it was furry. And it was—it had to have been six foot tall, at least seven foot tall because we were standing up and it still looked huge. So anyways, I said, "Mama, I said, do you see that? She said, don't worry about it. She said, keep going. She said, and don't look back. I said, Mom, let's run. She says, no, don't run. She said, just keep walking slowly, keep going back towards the house. And so I did until we got to the very bottom of that hill. And we got to the very bottom of that hill. I said, can we run now, Mom? She said, yes, you can run if you want to now. So we ran home. We went home and told my dad and my siblings what we would saw on our berry-picking route. And dad said, well, if that's what you actually saw, she said, he said, there's no bears that are that huge down here. She said, we, we don't have anything like that. And he said, what you saw was Bigfoot. And so we went on and forgot about Bigfoot after that because he wasn't in our house or anything. didn't scare us anymore. Anyways, it got colder, and it was like we had one big empty room that we didn't use, and we had it closed off. But my mom had taken a clothesline, and tied from corner to corner in the room so she could hang her clothes in there in the winter because she scrubbed on the board. We lived in southern Illinois. We didn't have a washing machine. We had a scrub board. You have to remember that was like 60 years ago. A lot of people down in the southern hills didn't have washers. A few had old ringer washers, but my mom had a tub. So anyway, she had went in there. She had hung her clothes up. She went in to get a dress out that she planned on ironing for the next day. And all of a sudden we heard my mom scream, She just as loud as she could scream. And we heard her feet hitting the floor as they come bouncing through the door into the other rooms. We wanted to know what was going on. Dad said, Jane, what in the world's going on? I said, why are you screaming like that? And she says, well, wait. She said, as I reached to get my dress off the line, she said, I saw this great big huge thing standing there tall as the sill." stooped over, bent with his hands up to the window looking at me, it was big and hairy. And so, dad of course went out, but there was nothing there. She didn't, he didn't find it of course. But after that, we was very leery. We didn't go out at night and play in the yards like we had before. So I guess you could say that's the end of the story.
1: I'm one
5: What's in the basket? Easter eggs.
6: What's in the basket? Clothes. What's in the basket?
7: Nothing.
1: What's in the basket? My brother. in the
3: basket open it if you dare basket case opening at our theater for you an analysis film presentation
2: what was the star wars
3: experience like for you
8: <laughs> oh you are naughty boy you know you've been reading things about me well i don't think I'll share show... yes i will how have hoped see that over 12 inches from there to there big feet um now uh, Berman and nathans had looked after me man and boy for years and years and years and they've never let me down once except on this occasion because i was dressed as a rather like an edwardian chauffeur with a, a high collar up there and a sort of fountain tents across here as grand moff tarkin yeah. in star wars and a pair of boots, riding boots, was it came right up to here, tight-fitting, you see. Incidentally, I've often wondered what a grand moth is. Sounds like something that came out of a cloth, Clothes cloth grand moth, you know. Uh, I've gone off the track. They hadn't got time to have my boots made for me, which is usually the case, because of my large feet. So I had to do with a pair out of stock. So there I was, on the first day of shooting, this very, very cross, uh, unpleasant gentleman, Grand Moff Tarkin, stomping around, and it was agony, it really was. So, the next day I said to dear George Lucas, the director, I said, George, I am not asking for close-ups, but do you think you could shoot me from the waist upwards from now on? And he said, why and i explained the reason so he said oh all right and he gave me a pair of carpet slippers so for the rest of the film i stomped around looking extremely angry and very cross with that dear little carrie fisher and his old grandma in carpet slippers
0: Hey Frank, you ever had a half-baked, two-bit, not-quite-fully-thought-out idea in your head? (laughs) Like when you were a kid, you thought it'd be a great idea if you owned your own hamster-walking business? Or that time you thought it was okay for your kid to have a fire ant colony in his bedroom? Or just maybe you thought it was okay if you wore lycra shorts. Like, at all. Ever. (laughs) Well, if you're anything like me, you've had these thoughts and ideas all the time. But the question is, what do you do with them? Well, tonight we celebrate those creative, air quote, geniuses (laughs) that took a suspect idea and ran with it. And whether by skill, determination, or just plain dumb luck, made a diamond out of coal. Tonight we honor 10 films that had every reason to
2: fail, but miraculously did not. Frank, what's your first movie? Well, mine's a little boring, but it but it is a good example of this. And it's Star Wars. And as much as it's been lauded and gigantic uh, for its gigantic um, well money it's made and everything else, it's also been talked about a lot about how crazy its beginnings were. And starting with the script, because if you see all the permutations of George Lucas as he went along... From having all the characters be little people, including, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker, to having Han Solo an alien, to things they even kept like uh, Princess Leia being his sister, all kinds of crazy things. And the only reason it got hemmed in and turned into uh, a pretty good script is that he had producers (laughs) that forced him to shrink it down into one kind of a film. Uh, not 10 different kinds of films.
0: And let's get this straight. You don't think Star Wars is boring. You think that the first one that this is on the list is a little no, boring.
2: No, it's, yeah. it's just it's a common film and everyone knows it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think a lot of people know the, the, all the troubles it had getting made. there were, first of all, trying to get somebody to produce it. Uh, they finally went to 20th Century Fox. Uh, and at the time they were selling it, it was going to be uh, Wookiees. And it was a little bit like um the la- the last Jedi where they had the Ewoks only was gonna be the Wookiees and they were the one gonna be the ones beating out the Empire. Uh and maybe they thought, hey, we did Planet of the Apes, that worked. <laughs> so like, ah, Wookiees, ape things, sounds good. They
0: wouldn't have given it at the time of day, but uh American graffiti yes. made money I mean, and then all of a sudden And he, it was it's a great movie. He got a little bit of a, a blank check. Or at least some street A little cred. bit,
2: but you know, he, I mean, it wasn't everybody pounding on his door to do that.
0: No. no, 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 but he got meetings is what I mean, I guess. And it
2: was a, a different time. Um, I guess Annie had come out and that was a very optimistic play. And uh, it had done very well. But, you know, just previously, everything's the very gritty oh, 70s. The 70s. Where the devil is always wins. And you have Rosemary's ran. Baby. You have, you know, all the presidents. Yes.
0: You have every kind of a thing. Nixon, Vietnam War. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, Star Wars coming out. I mean, they didn't have proof that there was an audience waiting for it. And then, they didn't even have the special effects they needed for it. They invented everything. There was some stuff for... Um, uh, oh my gosh my brain uh, 2001 in the Space Odyssey and a few other films they look good they look good and but they needed such elaborate effects for this one that really even if they were things that they had figured out before, they pushed them way further than anyone ever had.
0: they they filmed the the principal photography without the special effects and you know and they, they it took them the whole year while they were doing that. To actually get enough yeah. to actually just start the effects. They had a year under their belt, and they didn't even have anything no, in the game. No, because can. the
2: first things he saw, first of all, he turned down. Yeah. So I don't know when they started those, but they said, this is not working. You I, I just saw a thing, board. and they
0: said, yeah, and they said it was a year.
2: They also talk about Star Wars always as the most expensive B-rate movie, and what they meant by that is that they had to plan... Um, you know, every shot because it had some kind of special effects in it most of the time. And they couldn't mess around, you know, because even I forget, I think they were going to get 9 million at first. It ended up being 11 at the end. Um, which I guess was the budget for two thousand ones. But that had been 10 years earlier and all the president's men, which is like a regular movie, you know, not a special effects movie. It was 22 million at the time. So, yeah. And, anyway, and, uh,
0: um, Kubrick is was known for staying on budget. Actually, he took a long time, but he was like pretty penny wise they said. Oh, okay. So, and that wouldn't even be a realistic budget for most people because they wouldn't work like like he yeah. did. Yeah,
2: well, uh, Lucas had to, and he, you know, I think it's because the seventies he went to Africa. You know, that was the good thing. Yeah, they, so all
0: the desert scenes were in Africa. Yeah,
2: Jaws, they shoot in the water. Well, i got a desert scene, so I'm going to the desert. I mean, some of the pickups and different things were in Death Valley, but a lot of them were Tunisia. So, um, anyway, there's a lot of ways this film could have gone wrong. And there are some people that say it did, it did go wrong. <laughs> but I'm not one of them. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, you most And I would. think a, a lot of w- reasons is because they took all kinds of old movies and <laughs> and sort of did an homage to them in this one film.
0: So he tarantino before Tarantino. Yes. <laughs> Very good.
2: So James, what's your number five?
0: Well, we're going to take it down like Several notches <laughs> when we come to my first As far one. as the budget or what? <laughs> well, as far as the budget, as far as the quality of the movie <laughs> and all that. But this one is so ridiculous that if you pitch the idea, you'd think that it couldn't even possibly be anything. So the fact that they made something that's watchable, I think, makes it my number five. And that is uh, Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> for, I like that. For, for people that don't know the the premise... The premise is is that two um, basically entry-level position uh, uh, insurance men find uh, some evidence of fraud, and they go to their boss with it. And their boss invites them for the weekend to his home in the Hamptons, unbeknownst to them, to have them killed because he's the person that's purporting the uh, fraud, Uh, right? Um, Perpetrating the the fraud. And uh, so from there... uh, they he called the their boss calls the uh you know his mob ties and has you know wants to have him killed. but un, they they change it up and they they actually end up ke- wanting to kill Bernie instead. oh because, because he's, he's been causing two, yeah, he's been yeah. causing too much trouble. He's like those those guys who cares? We want the real one. So the two gentlemen they show up at, at his house in the Hamptons and they already find him dead. He's he's been given a, a a lethal dose of heroin. And for a myriad of reasons, and cra- what what ends up happening is he's got a funny grin on his face because he got shot up with heroin and he's got sunglasses on, so you can't tell that he's dead. He just looks like he's drunk. And they have this roaming party and it comes in right when they come in and they can't <laughs> explain anything. They're going to call the cops, but they don't have time. And there's all these people there. And they get and everybody starts reacting to Bernie like he's still alive and he's just drunk. So <laughs> oh, all that Bernie, whatever. And then the whole rest of the film is one plot device after another to try to keep these guys, try to keep Bernie looking alive. And the hitman trying uh, several times to kill him, thinking that he's killed still him. Still alive. Yeah, thinking he's still alive. All in all, for just a, <laughs> for just somebody, you know, putting some. Uh, some sticks in a guy's in the back of a guy's shirt and propping him up and and uh, putting a a wire on his hand to make him wave. Uh, sounds way stupider than it actually ends up being. So, oh no, I think it's yeah, a movie. it's a um, it's a fun movie and it's 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 like I said, way better than it should be. So Frank, what's your next?
2: My uh, fourth one is another um, very popular film. And I don't have much really on it because only the premise is crazy. Because once they got down to it, um, all the choices they made were so good that if you watched them doing it, you knew it was going to be a hit. But that's Pirates of the Caribbean because you're making a movie about a ride at Disneyland. (laughs) And so, yes, there's a broad topic, but that could have gone so wrong. Kind of like the Haunted Mansion did. Oh, yeah. But, uh, or... Uh, you know, the other one that I really liked, but it didn't do well, was Tomorrowland. And I guess that's an even worse premise, but that movie was pretty darn good. That that had some pretty, it was a pretty interesting kind of concept, and it, it was a lot, in some ways, like that um, sci-fi channel TV series, the um, oh my gosh, what was that called? I think Eureka. And that was a town of all the geniuses, and they have them there inventing all the stuff that that nobody knows and the other stuff that people do know, it all comes from that town. Well, Tomorrowland's a little like that. It's all the geniuses, you know, hiding out and their ancestors, in their descendants. Anyway, I'm still sticking with pirates, though. <laughs> we'll go <laughs> well, back to that one. forth maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yes. but. Anyway, that's all I got to say, because all the choices, and I think if you were there filming it, you would, you would think this is going to be a hit, right? You know, every little move. Maybe there was stuff I don't know, but definitely the premise, kind of ridiculous. I would never would have went with it. So, James?
0: My fourth is, is the most popular on my list, anyways. And uh, just by the fact that it's a Coen Brothers film, right? That everybody's kind of, um, you know, I've known it or whatever. But if you think about it, and you don't think that the Coen Brothers are doing it, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is, is a crazy concept because you're going to set the Odyssey. You're going to remake the Odyssey. You're pitching this idea, right? You're remaking the Odyssey. We're going to set it in rural Mississippi (laughs) during the Great Depression. And we're going to make it a musical.
9: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which it is. It's funny.
0: You know, and we're going to throw in the Odyssey tropes, but we're also going to include... Some of the Southern tropes as well, like Robert Johnson character and, you know, that he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. uh, And uh, just the whole, you know, idea of of making records back then. All that, you know, also is... And they never read the Odyssey.
2: So (laughs) (laughs) their grasp on what the Odyssey actually is is probably based on Ray Harryhausen or something.
0: Yeah, so... For whatever reason, and I, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to doubt the Coen brothers because I haven't seen something from them that I didn't like. And and of course, they got the green light from this. But if you just take it on its premise, it's a wild premise. And, uh, you know, it's basically George Clooney and his and his two soldiers like the Odyssey trying to get home, trying to find his wife and, uh, you know, meeting the sirens Making a war, making <laughs> meeting the Cyclops, yeah, <laughs> all of these things, and you, you kind of and the la- blind prophet la- laugh, yeah, the blind prophet when he comes on the ra- on the railroad, all of these things interwoven into a story uh that's almost like could be a Laurel and Hardy thing because it's it's yeah. so slapstick and so and everybody's so dim witted, uh, even the smart one is dim witted, it's. It, it is wonderful, and if you, like I said, if you pitched it to me before, the fact that this came out of that, yeah, oh. I think is a Well, is, the other weird amazing. thing,
2: and I've never heard anyone say this, but the title comes from the, the um, what's the movie? Basically?
0: Sullivan's Travels.
2: Sullivan's Travels. And because that, it's the title of the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. Which was a highfalutin thing of of, of high drama that he decided to turn into a comedy. They didn't set it. Said it. None of the brothers said anything, but it seems like this would be the only comedy that that pretentious bastard could make, which is the Odyssey turned into the Depression of hobos and things. So, anyway, yeah, that's he, just an interesting side note on it.
0: His idea in in the movie, he he dropped out of Hollywood and, and uh, the the Sullivan. And yeah, he, Sullivan he wanted Travels. To kind of find his his uh, his self again and, and his, his connection his, with. He, the, yeah, the I, audience. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's during the depression, so he wants to make this grand, you know, movie on the Odyssey called "Brother, We're Out. Brother, Our... are <laughs> Our... So, Frank, ah. number three oh, for thank, you.
2: Thank you for saying three because yeah. I had no idea where you we were. I kind of have all popular movies um, that that really made it big, and this next one is Apocalypse Now. I think everyone's pretty much heard the stories behind this, and it really is a a film that just sort of collapsed under its own weight. Uh, it was, for one thing, it was supposed to be shot in 14 weeks in the Philippines. It, it, that was the spring of 76. But because of the weather and some kind of bad luck and disasters and logistic problems, uh, that did not happen. And also, Coppola was writing the thing. I, I you know, kind of as he went along. And the people were catching, you know, that worked in the film were catching... Tropical diseases, the helicopters they had for the famous scenes. They were constantly be taken back by Marcos to fight actual rebels. <laughs> and then they could get them back later on. And the crew would have these wild drinking parties and drug parties after after work, which could have gone very badly. And then a typhoon hit. <laughs> and, and then really weird things happened, like the the prop guys or somebody got a hold of real cadavers and said, oh, well, we, we will use these. They look very realistic. I don't know. Somebody sold them. They were looking for dummies, and this is what they came back with. And then the uh, the government found them and was ready to round them all up. And But they they were actually able to talk their way out of that one. They, they took all the people's passports. Um, and then everyone knows when Brando arrived, and he was like 300 pounds, and he hadn't learned any of his lines. And then he decided to shave off his hair, which wasn't the plan, and um, and decided that he was going to make up things as he went along, as far as the script goes. And he wouldn't work with Dennis Hopper. They had to, because it's so funny, because he was having a drinking problem at the time, but he didn't like Dennis Hopper on drugs, so he didn't want to work with him. So Dennis Hopper would be shot <laughs> for the same scene they were both in, and then they would shoot him separately and have it work, and they oh, had no to... God make it um you know dark to kind of hide the enormity of uh of, of the, Marlon, Brando. Uh, Marlon Brando. and Martin Sheen had a heart attack on the set. And Coppola had a seizure and collapsed. And then later on, he had a nervous breakdown and he kept telling people he was going to commit suicide. So, and then there was a crazy editing, you know, because they shot so much footage and things. And, uh, um, you know, it was his own company, but I think the people that gave him the money was trying to take it away and edit it themselves, even though he was the production. Yeah. So if any movie should have just died, <laughs> it was that one. But it came out, and you know, some people don't like it, but it's iconic, and it's, it's, there so many interesting and weird things in it, and quotable things that I think it was it was a great success. And
0: then we forgot to mention it's loosely based on Joseph Heller's. Oh yeah, Heart uh, of Darkness. Yeah, right,
2: the, so. a lot of the. Was it no, not Heller's? Heller? Heart of Darkness. It's the Heart of Darkness.
0: Whoever wrote Joseph Heller's uh, Catch Twenty Two. Sorry, Heart of Darkness. I can't even think yeah. of the guy's name now. Yeah. But anyway. But, uh, all right, so my number three is uh, a classic in my mind, but uh, maybe not in anybody else's. <laughs> but it is a Mike Myers vehicle that he did right after. It seems like he did it before, but he did it after Wayne's World.
2: Oh, no, he did it after yeah. Wayne's World.
0: Yeah, and this is So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> and yeah, no. I don't know if the... The 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 concept is the crazy idea, or that he would use his his uh, you know his goodwill to make this to movie, make that movie, yeah. he and the crazy hair point. I love it, I but do.
2: you watch it and go, who was the audience he thought this was for? Yeah, so he's a beat
0: poet in San Francisco that has basically a commitment problems, yes. <laughs> and, and and he meets. Uh, and he's he's breaking up every time he gets serious with somebody. <coughs> excuse me, he breaks up with them. He finds a reason <laughs> to break up with, with them with a poem. <laughs> yeah, and so oh yeah, at the, at the very beginning of the show, he's he's breaking up with a beat poem. Uh, you know, getting over this this woman, and he's saying what what her problems were, what he had had problems with. So, enter a butcher <laughs> that he. Uh, he goes to get some haggis from for his father, who's who's Scottish, and uh, he meets a woman, and who ends
2: up may or may not being an ax murderer. <laughs> and, and, he has a very paranoid family, and even though he thinks that he's not picked it up, he's definitely paranoid himself with weird conspiracy things. And and it turns out at the end that
0: it's not uh, her; it's it's her sister. But the whole thing is is crazy. It's really funny. It's Mike Myers. It's a lot of good, I think. And, and uh, one of
2: his best, uh, I think.
0: And it, it's definitely something to to see. But if you were pitching, hey, like, a, it's an axe murderer comedy. Yeah, how you're pitching that. So, anyways, see this movie because it's actually really good. And you'll recognize the, the wife, Nancy Travis. She's the wife of Tim Allen in in his new show, or the latest show he was in, Last Man Standing. So oh, okay. Anyways, I, I think it's a great movie. Frank, what's am your number I, Am I two? down to number, number two? Number two.
2: Okay, very good. This uh, is probably the most famous. No, nah, nothing's more famous than Star Wars. But this is Casablanca, of all the ones. And that thing has an all-star cast, including all the character actors are an all-star cast, of every everyone that was at the time. It was done by Warner Brothers in 1942. Excuse me. And... Well, to start with, it was based on a play uh, that was never produced. And so that, you know, it was the most anyone paid for a play um, that had never been produced. (laughs) So I don't know if that's a very high bar. But anyway, um, it was uh, Hal Wallace was the producer and Michael Curtiz is the director. And they were both great. But when they got the script, not the script, but just the play... Uh, lots of people looked at it and said, "This is not a good play. This is kind of hokey. This is not realistic. It's very weird." They didn't care for it, and they put, like always though back then, they put lots of writers on it. There's three credited writers, but there's also a bunch, at least one, but I think a bunch more, ghostwriters, to rewrite and do things. You know, couple dialogue lines. Yeah, yeah, um, they had
0: stuff. People on the set probably too. So,
2: yeah, well. They started and they shot this whole thing uh, in order that you see it, and that's mainly because um, they only had half the script done when they started filming. So and it was the first half, so they just filmed everything in order, which was weird. Yeah, I don't, I can't think of another thing
0: besides you know something like Rope or something. I don't know, but yeah, they might have had to do yeah. that too,
2: but I bet they didn't either. You know, yeah. he planned it so well. Um, anyway. Um, and then there was trouble with the cast. They They really just all treated it like it was a job. Nobody expected it to be that big of a thing. Humphrey Bogart was breaking up with his current wife at the time and he was drinking on and off set and really didn't have much to say to Ingrid Bergman. They, the only thing they had in common is they both wanted to get off the picture. <laughs> and so um, the rest of the cast didn't really hang around each other much either and it was a tight budget not crazy tight though and I think as they went along they they started thinking hey we got something here and I, I um, I'm thinking the director must have known but anyway it was something that started off very bad um, and I don't think I don't know why or who it was that was the genius that could see this <laughs> In this very rough diamond, but they did, and uh it came out as one of my favorite movies. I well, love it, that. Yeah, I love
0: that movie. It it should be. Yeah, I I I like it better than what most people think is the best. You know, the best films, which are
2: you know, The Godfather and and uh, Citizen Kane. I like that movie better. <laughs> I do like Casablanca better than them. The ending, by the way, there there were a lot of things like this because the script is making up as they go along. But the last line, they just have them walk away and they dub the last line in because they had a couple lines they didn't know which one they were going to pick. And so they just, they're just they not facing the camera. Just have them walk off and we'll come up with something for them to say. Well, and it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, very good. All right,
0: James. All right, my number two, harkens back to the, uh, it's the oldest film on my list and uh, no list would be complete. Without a black and white film for me, uh, harken back to the days, my dad was a big film. Our dad was a big film. Uh, not aficionado. He just liked films. And he, he did not uh, know. He didn't memorize stuff. He didn't do any of that. He just no. liked it. He did he, know all the actors' Actors, names. He knew but actors, for sure. And directors.
2: Sure. He'd know their names. Yes. You know, but.
0: And, uh, but he was actually a great person to learn to watch films with because he would appreciate things for what they were. Period. And I I am that way today. And there's so many people that are not around me. I really appreciate that. I I, I got that from him. Anyways, this movie is from 1949. My father loves baseball, so I saw this with him. And he had seen it, I think, maybe in the theater. Uh, yeah,
2: most of the time. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and... Um, you know, it goes, oh, I remember this or whatever. And it's with none other than Ray Miland. That's a weird thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. And baseball. it's called It Happens Every Spring. And it's kind of, it's an ambiguous title, too. <laughs> like, yeah. what is that? Is that, it a, sounds like a romance. is that a, yeah, like, is
10: that like some kind of sex comedy
0: or, film? you know, what, yeah. what's going on? And it's actually baseball, which does happen every spring. But it's about a scientist, a professor at a university, that while he's a chemist and while doing his chemistry thing he has all this stuff going in kids are playing baseball outside and the ball flies through the window knocks all this stuff down and combines everything together
7: and what comes out with it
0: he finds that the what's, what's left on the ball something gets on the ball whatever chemical X is is, is it repels wood and he, he he finds that he can throw pitches and, and they will repel. Nobody can hit them. Nobody can hit them because, and then in the special effects back in the day are ridiculous. And I knew even then it was ridiculous. They make these weird loops whoop, like over the thing and land in the glove somehow, like it would be some kind of centrifugal force, which couldn't happen. It's like against the laws of physics. But, anyways. He's Professor uh, Vernon K Simpson and, he, and then he, he takes a leave of absence and becomes King Kelly. <laughs> and then he, lead, he leads the Chicago team, which is not the Cubs or the White Sox. <laughs> he leads it. Oh, so he's a pitcher. Yeah. He, no, yeah. And <laughs> he cheats his way to the world. Series <laughs> 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 With fun and frivolity. And it's hilarious because people would have to be like, What the hell? Are you gonna do this? It's like the fl- it's like flubber, but except it's it's a little more serious than that, like yeah, because
2: he just doesn't win one game. It's the whole uh... yeah, and
0: it takes himself a little bit more yeah, more serious than 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 Flubber, right? Flubber's yeah, the you definitely professor. know that. Yeah, sorry, the absent-minded professor. You definitely know Fred McMurray. You know they knew when they signed out, oh, Okay, this is a kids movie. We're making a kids movie, but this is a comedy that that that's not just for kids. This is an adult, you know, an adult comedy where the premise is that. This guy concocts, accidentally, a, a, a wood-repellent baseball. <laughs> and he changes his way to and fortune. So, it happens every spring, 1949, uh, directed by Lloyd Bacon, and uh, starring, like I said, Ray Milan and Gene Peters as the love interest, uh, is my number two.
2: Well, very good. Well, now we're to my number one. And finally, I have something as interesting in yours. And I loved these movies growing up, but it's the most ridiculous idea ever. And that's Francis the Talking Mule, which of course led to Mr. Ed later. But same sort of thing. And it's with poor Donald O'Connor, and I don't know whether he thought this was fantastic or this was the death of his career, and he's just hanging on to make any kind of money. <laughs> and the thing is, the first one, oh, they must have nobody must have thought that was going to make anything. And then they go on to make a bunch of sequels with the thing. I think it goes to the Navy. I don't know. There's, all, oh, yeah, there's, there's yeah. all kinds of stuff. And it's he just finds this mule who's very you know, as a mule would be. He's very sarcastic and grumpy. He's, he's like a, just a little bit better than Eeyore. And <laughs> you know, it causes trouble for him all the time. But then somehow having a talking mule in the end makes him, you know, he goes on to win out in the end. So, um... Anyway, I don't think they had much trouble making these movies. They're all low budget. It's just a little bit of peanut butter, and yeah, some imagination, the, and you got yourself a talking mule. Uh, I don't know if they had trouble because the mules can be stubborn. You better get some people that can really work with them. In, yeah. So there's not much too much too much to say except that should have never worked. And it it for a B-rate movie, it made tons of money, and there were a bunch of them. So. They, and then it led to a TV show you know they stole it and made it Mr. Ed who by the way uh, the great makeup man of Frankenstein and the werewolf uh, Jack Pierce that was the last job he had before he died he was no. doing makeup on Mr. Oh, Ed my and gosh. maybe applied the peanut butter I have no idea James what's your number one
0: All right. last but not least is actually one of my favorite films uh it's got to at least be in my top. I don't know thirty. It's 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 one that I loved and watched, like people would watch, uh, you know, any of the Disney films. I watched it yeah. as a kid.
2: Well. And, and and when I was on the Grinch in the in the makeup cage, the ladies at worked that they would watch this literally over and over all day long for the entire shoot, which was a couple months. <laughs>
11: so I mean, it's
2: a lot of them. It's something other
0: and people's I'm not favorite. Sick of it, so. <laughs> So, in 1985, somebody decided that they would pitch the idea of making a a movie out of the board game Clue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and that seems like that cannot work at
0: all. No, but somebody that was actually a genius said, okay, we're going to (laughs) have Eileen Brennan, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKean, Martin Mole, Leslie Ann Warren, and Leslie Ann Warren... uh, be the cast, yes, and,
2: and a bunch of other great um, character actors, uh, character actors, yeah. including as, what's his name from WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, as the <laughs> as the evangelist that comes to the door, <laughs> but he's really the chief of police, or you know, head of the FBI, or yes.
0: the FBI head man <laughs> for the for the sting. Anyways, as you would expect, Clue, like the board game, it's a murder mystery, and uh, it's it centers around. Invitations that all of these people have gotten uh, because they've been being blackmailed by Mr. Body and they all give get code names like the <laughs> the board game, Mrs. Peacock, Professor Plum and, and Mr. Green, all, all of these. And uh, they 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 come together and they find out that oh yeah this is the person that's been blackmailing them and, and then all hell breaks loose as far as there's murders uh, and the other thing was, is that it ends with another if it, clue itself, the board game being pitched as an idea is not a gimmick enough, they they said that they were going to have three different endings and play them yeah, different, at different pe- theaters. theaters and you'd it's have
2: a rent you get them all, so yeah, the
0: A, B, or C ending and you would you would uh, show up to the theater, and some they said some theaters did say what ending they were doing, and probably as the sh- the movie uh, was shown, they they said they told them. But some people did just said, "Hey, we don't know what ending." And you just showed up and hoped you had saw a different ending. But uh, um, Tim Curry is, I mean, you know of uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show and Rooster from Annie and a lot of other things. What's the uh, this is some money and this is some money from from other gangster film with Sylvester Stallone. Oh my gosh, it's a one-name thing. Anyways. Well, then
2: Pennywise. On oh, it. yeah, right.
0: Uh, I, I think on it. really one of the most underrated actors because he's yeah, done so many great things. even though he's lotted,
2: it's still not good enough praise. No, I, I, I really so, believe that. And as much as he did, he should have done more. Yeah, I think that they...
0: They did not, he is done, definitely underutilized, if not underappreciated. But uh, anyways, it is way better than it should be. I mean, it is so much better than it should be. It is, you can't overstate that. It's like <laughs> yes. with the premise and the, you know, hey, we're going to do this gimmick. And, and um, just the character, uh, Eileen Brennan. Is Mrs. Peacock. She's hilarious <laughs> in that. They're all good um, and they
2: all have great quotable lines. And they have the lines thing.
0: that shouldn't work as well. Like everything should've worked and it does. Yeah, because it's the cast. But, you see know, there's really. the French maid and Mrs. Peacock and he goes, Where's your powder room? And she goes, Wee wee madame. Or do you have a powder room? Wee wee madame. No, I just have to powder my nose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: I mean silly things like that, but they work with Madeline Kahn. <laughs> and <with> Madeline Kahn, <laughs> the flame
0: the flames that were coming out of
2: my head. That was
0: all... (laughs) That was all uh, a... uh,
2: That was an improv. (laughs) I'm sure a bunch of it was, with that crowd. Oh, yeah. I mean,
0: they were... It was way better... It got way better, uh, uh, you know, attributes than it should have. And uh, raw material, if you will. And it made the movie, I think, that's why it's my number one, because it's not something you could... Pitch with a straight face, and yet if you it shows if you throw enough talent at at they they have an old adage in the in the Air Force uh, when they're building planes if you have enough thrust behind a brick it'll fly. <laughs> well, that's what this is. and this is it. That's it. That's it. There was enough yeah. thrust behind this Very this good. brick, and it it flew. So, anyways, that is our that's the end. I think of our salute to the movies that should not have. Worked, but but definitely did, and we are all better for yeah. having these films in our lives. Right, gonna go <laughs> watch them right
2: now. We did a marathon.
9: come out after dark I feed on young I get things done There's a dark shadow lurking in the deep Hunting and looking for something to eat Shark attack! Shark attack! Get out of the water and don't look back Shark attack! Shark attack! Out in the surf there's a bunch of fins. Lifeguard, he won't let me swim Hey mister, where's my pup? I threw a stick in the water and he didn't come up Shark attack, shark attack Get out of the water and don't look back Shark attack, shark attack The shark has one thing on his mind Eating everything that he can find The shark has lots of big sharp teeth Look out underneath! Ow! Shark attack! Shark attack! Get out of the water and don't look back! Shark attack! Shark attack!
10: Now, let's talk about the latest aspect of, of your career, which is, I mean, um, it's quite extraordinary. I been all these years in, in movies, and now all of a sudden you've hit the jackpot <laughs> with a thing called Star Wars, which I saw last week. And I, I think just, loved it. I think it's super. I think mean, it's marvelous escapism and oh, it sure. clean up. But I mean, how did you come to, to be involved with a piece of science fiction like that? Well, I, it arrived as a script. I was just finishing a picture in Hollywood. I um, took another day to go and the script arrived on my dressing table um, and I heard that it had been delivered by George Lucas and I thought well that's rather impressive because he's an up-and-coming uh, and very respect young director so and then when I opened it and found it was science fiction I thought oh crumbs you know this is simply not for me uh, <laughs> and then I started reading and it seemed to me the dialogue was pretty ropey uh, <laughs> but I had to go on turning the page and, th- I mean, that's an essential yes. in any script. You know, you've got to know what happens next or, uh, or what's going to be said next. And I I went on reading and I thought, no, I, mean, uh, I, I like this. Uh, if only we can get some of the dialogue altered. And then I met him, we got on very well, and I found myself doing it, that's all. And it's made more money than any other movie ever made. So I'm told, And yes. you've got yourself part of the action. Ah, uh, well. Two that's... and a half percent, isn't it? No, 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 not quite that, no. What is it? Sir Alay, <laughs> 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 so, uh, so how Ah, uh, 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 Well, as, you want that story. Please. I tried to keep this dark. I don't know where this all sprang from. <laughs> um, I think it was the Evening Standard to blame for this. Um, I had a contract. I, my agent said, I've asked for 2% of whatever because we didn't think it would make any, you know. I've never had, a, I've had a percentage on a film before and they lose money like mad if I have a percentage. <laughs> and I said, oh fine, all right, 2%. Uh, and the day before the film opened in San Francisco, uh, George Lucas phoned me and said, um, he's very, very, again, he's like Alan he's very diffident and very shy and quiet and, he has a funny little voice. And he said, um, I think the movie's kinda of gonna be all right. And I said, oh, I'm glad, George. He said, yeah, I, the press quite like it. I said, good. And he said, we're pleased with, um, you know, very grateful for little alterations you suggested and so we'd like to offer you another half percent um, by making it two and a half. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's marvelous, thank you very much. But a matter of a few weeks later, in fact, the day I saw the film, i have just seen it once, um, the producer, who again is a charming, delightful chap, I said, about this little extra something you were (laughs) kindly offering, I wonder if we could have something in writing just so that, you know, my agent and so on believes this. Uh, And he said, oh, about the quarter percent, yes. (laughs) No yeah. <laughs> So it's two and a quarter percent. If you yeah. Put that right. yes, sadly, what's the fascination of it to you? Do you think? I think a marvellous, healthy innocence. Yes. Um, great pace, wonderful to look at, full of guts. Nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang bang and people fall over and are dead, but uh, you know, no horrors, no sleazy sex. In fact, actually, no sex at all. When it comes to that, uh, and a. A sort of wonderful freshness about it—a kind of like a f- wonderful fresh air. Mm. When I came out of the cinema into Tottenham Court Road, I thought, "Oh, Lord, London's awfully sort of gritty and dirty and full of rubbish, isn't it?" Because this had all been so—I um, think that's uh, invigorating. Uh, absolutely right. Actually, one of the few movies I've come out of recently where I really felt happy and uplifted when mm. I came out. I'd enjoyed myself. Mm, actually, that's all. It? People are going to read too much into it. It's a simple simple stuff for all ages. Are they no, doing I that, that now fun. with you because of the kind of, you know, sort of... Uh, ...reading more into it, the sort of guru figure that you play. Oh, yes, so I'm getting some pretty strange letters. Are I you? Don't mind telling you. Really? <laughs> I can imagine, actually. Oh, no, surely, yes. yes. Uh, my wife and I have got problems. Would you come over and live with us for a few months?
5: <laughs>
10: <laughs> <laughs> yes. You could have yourself a fine time.
5: I never <laughs> considered myself well-read in science fiction in in fiction and I'm I'm aware of the writers Robert Heinlein and, and a lot of my friends are into uh, science fiction I've really enjoyed it in films always and fantasy I think really that's one of the reasons I became interested in in uh, in cinema because of films like King Kong Forbidden Planet it really is my favorite genre of them all and uh, I think that's why I'm so excited to be in a, in a film like this because if I could pick any subject this would be it and I think the, that Star Wars is really a, more than science fiction. is a, It's a wonderful romantic c- fantasy story like Wizard of Oz or or any of those. So to me, it's more than science fiction. Could you come, uh, creating a character out of, out of fantasy world where you can't go on it when, when, when history for you? Well, uh, really, I think. Um, that's one of the things that George uh, the director really wants us to do is is play it exactly as if you were doing a story about a a farm boy in Nebraska and not on Tatooine you know I I don't react like oh my gosh here's a a robot and he's walking he's talking it's it's like a a cow would be I and you know so it's just the opposite really it's 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 um, all these bizarre characters and semi human, these humanoids are, are, are the norm. So, really, it's the hardest thing is, is trying to keep it very, um, just off the cuff and very normal. Now, from
8: banquet comes. <laughs> what is it, Cynthia? What is it?
9: Giblet gravy and sliced turkey.
10: Yes, giblet gravy and sliced turkey, together in the most significant frozen dish of our time, Buffet Supper. Winner of three Banquet Academy Awards. Best sliced turkey. Best performance by a giblet gravy in a supporting role. Best performance by a housewife.
9: I just put it in the oven, and by and by it was done. And I had a delicious buffet supper. Oh, yes, I did. Slices of turkey, all covered with gravy and little bitty giblets. Do you hear from
10: the same producers who brought you beef stew, Salisbury steak with gravy, and the unforgettable chicken and dumplings comes the outstanding banquet production of the 20th Century, giblet gravy and sliced turkey. Color by Paprika, now appearing citywide in a frozen food section near you. Uh,
11: as Ian sort of <laughs> was trying to indicate, this is a big organ. Uh, it's. Uh, is quite different. A theater organ is quite different from a church organ. Uh, Generally, they don't have as many pipes as a church organ would have, and generally the pipes that a theater organ does have are larger in scale and operate on higher wind pressures. Therefore, while it may have a slightly smaller number of pipes, each pipe is a lot louder. The voicing on the pipes in a the theater organ is more extreme. That is, it's intended to be more orchestral, more imitative of voices in the orchestra. Uh, uh, just everything. I mean, you're talking about the theater, Hollywood, the movies, hype. So everything is hyped up in, in, in its appearance. Look at this console. How gaudy this thing is. But that all fits right in line with the with the movie palaces of the 1920s. Uh, to go along with all that hype, you look at all these stock tabs on here, there's 256 of them. Now in a strict sense of a classic organ, a 256 stops on a console must indicate at least 256 ranks of pipes. But on a theatrical organ, any number, a smaller number of pipes, groups of pipes, can be used, utilized in many different ways. So that's why there are so many stops. Uh, for uh, a relatively small... Are, are you folks here for the, the, the Oregon Tribal Society meeting or are you thinking that you're going to have pizza? I
7: think so. <laughs> well, uh,
11: <laughs> well, the restaurant's usually closed on Monday nights so i right. are just here for a, a special program. But if you want to hear the organ, come on in. But there's no pizza tonight. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, uh, this organ... Is made up from parts that I've collected from all over the United States over the last 35 years or so. Most of the parts are from organs that are closer to home in the Northwest. The nucleus of this organ I consider to be from the Oriental Theater that uh, is here on Grand Avenue. It's now a parking lot. This is the east end of the Morrison Street Bridge, but. But that is a nucleus. There are parts in here from the, the Paramount Theater, the Broadway, the Hollywood, the old Liberty Theater, uh, some here in, in town, uh, the Coliseum Theater in Seattle, uh, uh, Fox Theater in uh, Brooklyn, New York, Mass Bomb Theater in Philadelphia. The console is from the Metropolitan Theater in Boston. So it's it's from all over And kind of what has happened here, it didn't start out this way, but the way it's evolved, in this organ, there is an example of every major voice built by the Wurlitzer Company for the the Wurlitzer Theater Organs of the 1920s. So now there's 51 ranks in this organ. That amounts to about 4,000 pipes, just under Uh, 4,000. Open the charts there there's a, that's called air noise. That's putting it politely, what that really is, is a leak. All pipe organs leak, and theatrical organs, because they operate on high wind pressures, tend to leak more and you hear it more. The range of, of uh, pitch that we'll be listening to tonight, there's the highest pitch, that's one octave higher than the highest pitch on a piano. That fundamental frequency of about 8,000 hertz. At the other end of the scale uh, are the 32 foot pipes uh, which resonate at around 16 hertz. Some of them, you see those of you who can see reflections of the spotlights in the windows, kind of rattles things around a bit.
7: <laughs> so that range,
11: they have more and greater, That, by the way that uh, That low C is an octave lower than the than the lowest notes on a a piano. Uh, You often hear things about extreme bass and how much can you hear. Now you certainly have no problem hearing. There's another one because those tones are rich in harmonics. Really hearing the harmonics. There's not much fundamental that you're hearing there. The case in point, now here is a pipe. This particular one is a 16-foot pitch. It's a stocked pipe, therefore its harmonic train is only of odd order. There are no even-order harmonics. This is around 32 hertz. So without the harmonics for your ear to lock on to, most people really can't hear much. You know, get down below (coughs) about F. It's just kind of a lot of air moving around. But yet, when it's applied to the other sounds of the organ, believe me, that very low, low bass is something. There's one other aspect, a major aspect of the theatrical organ that will have a big impact on the recording here. That is, the tremulous. A lot of people come in here and they see those bellows bouncing around, and they think that's what's pumping the wind. But actually, the wind is generated by a 60-horsepower turbine that's off the, another wall off the corner of the building. Those bellows that are jumping up and down are the pressure regulators. They try to keep a constant wind pressure to the organ all the time but a theatrical organ relies heavily on vibrato. Vibrato is a variation of the wind pressure in a controlled manner that therefore causes the pipes to, to, to warble. Now you can think of it from an audiophile's point of view, you look at those regulators bouncing up and down, and just kind of imagine those things great big subwoofers. But let me tell you, this equipment here uh, will record that. that. That's running at about six and a half hertz. And all this digital equipment will record that. Now you're playing some back earlier at the playback speakers, and you just see the thing gobbling away. I mean, the sound.
12: Well it was, what appealed to me was that George Lucas, who wrote it and also directed it, uh, didn't want a damsel in distress, didn't want your stereotypical princess, you know, sort of a victim, frightened, uh, incapable of dealing with a situation without the guys. So uh, he wanted a fighter, he wanted someone who was independent, and uh, that's what appealed to me about that part, yeah.
13: When you read the script, which I imagine was several years ago now, what was your reaction because it is, I'm sure then, it must have seemed, to some extent anyway, a pretty bizarre kind of film.
12: Well, I wanted to know what the lunch breaks were going to be like. <laughs> you know, when they said cut, and here you were sitting around with three-headed monsters and people with hair dryer heads and so on. But it was a terrific script, because they had to budget the film like a low-budget film. It, they called it the most expensive low-budget film ever made. They had to put, plan every shot, because... Uh, it was good. They were going to have to devise all sorts of new things for the special effects. They only had, and I say only, but for special effects, it's not much. Ten million, uh, three million dollars. It's a ten million dollar film, which is the same as what two thousand one cost ten years ago. They devised a whole new method for shooting the special effects, which was uh, computerized, and they would have a memory, and it would it would just shoot the thing on a, against a blue screen uh, over and over for about a year to perfect all of the things, the blowing up of certain portions of the planets and so forth, took a long time to do all that.
13: So, with m- they Unitures. used models, models um. and, and shot each individual movement separately? Yes. like Rather like a cartoon is made in a, in a sense? Yes. Now, as well as working with robots and strange sort of creatures, um, you also get involved in some very hairy, death-defying scenes yourself, don't you? I'm thinking, yeah. in particular, when you when you fly across that chasm with, with the, the handsome hero, Luke. How did you feel about that? I mean, I presume you did it, did you? It mm-hmm. was you.
12: It was me. I don't want to brag or anything, you know. <laughs> no, it was difficult to do, because it was about 30 feet up, and uh, they had a brace on Mark, and Mark Hamill, who plays Luke, and one on me connected to him, and they put two cameras up, and first they hung us from the ceiling to che- check the durability of the rope or the actors, I don't know Charming, which, <laughs> and the crew made fun of us. We just hung there helpless. And then we did the swing across and I was very frightened and we did it and I liked it but we did it right.
13: Now I've heard this film described in all sorts of ways and I've, I've seen it for myself. How would you sum it up? How do you sum up the story of the thing?
12: Well it's, uh, it's good against evil, it's It's uh, George's homage to every film that he ever loved. George loves films, and that's what this film is about, is movies. Every scene is uh, in some way reminiscent of of a scene in a film that we all loved before, like in High Noon, there's a bar sequence, only this time it's with monsters instead of Gary Cooper. Uh, and uh, you've got The Wizard of Oz. We have a robot that looks sort of like the Tin Man. We, you have adventure like Robin Hood. We do swing acrosses. I guess it could even be like Tarzan. Buck Rogers. It's got everything in it, every ingredient. George made a movie that he wanted to see, not so, a movie that he thought uh, the public would want to see, because if he thought that uh, if he made a movie like that, we would be seeing a disaster film again, or something like that, probably.
13: In touch with the Flash Gordons as well in this.
12: It's got whatever you want it to be. It's, a, it's pure entertainment. It's like a roller coaster ride, and it can be interpreted as long as you enjoy it, which is the intention of it.
14: One of the biggest movie hits this summer is Star Wars, and it is not unusual to meet a 9- or 10-year-old kid who has seen it five or six times. Star Wars has got spaceships and princesses, lovable robots and evil villains in black capes. It ends happily ever after. That's nice. And with me are three stars of Star Wars. Carrie Fisher who plays the princess mark hamill who plays the innocent and brave young hero and harrison ford the only movie actor named after two presidents who is the dashing daring space pilot who helps them all escape from danger good morning all good, good morning. morning is that nice to be named after two presidents it's it's never come up before <laughs> well they're two of the most famous presidents in American history. i'm gratified <laughs> i have not seen, with the exception of Rocky, in the last few years, the kind of audience participation and audience reaction for and to a film that we have for Star Wars. It's great to sit in a theater and see people really enjoy something like that. Have you done it? Have you been? Any of you? Have you gone to see a theater just Oh yeah. anonymously just go in as a patron? It's easy to be anonymous at this point, (laughs) really. Nobody recognizes us when we go into a theater, which is a pleasure, I must say. And you knew George Lucas because you were in one of his other big hits, American Graffiti, and very good in that, I must say. You've been in two enormous popular successes. American Graffiti is one of the top 25 moneymakers, and this is going to be sky high, you should pardon the expression. I must ask you a question. Tell me how it was like, you you three are young actors and actresses, and you worked with one of the superb actors of our time, Alec Guinness. What was it like to work with that kind of a master, just like Olivier? He spent the first half hour of our our acquaintanceship trying to get me a flat, on the telephone trying to get me a flat. He's enormously generous. Well, the name of the movie is Star Wars. It is going to be one of the biggest money-making movies of our time, no doubt about it. One of the big hits of the summer. And these are three of the (laughs) non-robots from Star Wars.
15: He who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon odd watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet, I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could only find cobwebs and shadows with stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp and there was an accursed smell everywhere as of the piled up corpses of dead generations it was never light so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower, which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beans must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything alive but the noiseless rats, bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted shriveled and decaying, like the castle. To me, there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strode some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events, and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged me or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own, for although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books, I felt conscious of youth, because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would lovingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once, I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser, and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for life grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest of the unknown outer sky, and at last I resolved to scale that tower, for though I might, since it was better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined and deserted and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of a haunted and venerable mould assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure, that I might peer out and above, and try to judge the height I had attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling of that concave and desperate Precipice. I felt my head touch a solid thing. I none knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness, I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended since the slab was the trapdoor of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully, and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall but hoped when necessary to pry it open again. Believing I was now at a prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows, that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and the stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble in odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what holy secrets might abide in this high apartment, so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hand came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked. But with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate crating of iron, and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway, was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories fancy, now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully, and found unlocked, which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out, most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmal, unexpected, and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on a level, Through the grating, nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleams spectrally in the moonlight. Half conscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the frantic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was, or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though, as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory, that my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows that were only occasional ruins, bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river, where crumbling, massy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal. A venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder but what I observed with chief interest in delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light, and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company, indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before, and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackish convulsions of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their maddeningly fleeing companions, Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed listening to their vanishing echoes I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection the room seemed deserted but when I moved towards one of the alcoves I thought I detected a presence there. A hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room as I approached the arch. I began to perceive the presence more clearly, and then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly relation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause. I beheld in full, frightful lividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had, by its simple appearance, changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity and desolation, the putrid dripping edelon of unwholesome revelation, the awful barring of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone revealing outlines a luring, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moulded disintegrating apparel an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralysed but not too much so to make a feeble effort towards flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me, my eyes bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared lonesomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred, and showed the terrible object, but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves at my arm, could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the Carrion Thing, whose hideous, hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear nearly mad. I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close when in one cataclysmous second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident my fingers touched the rotting outstretched path of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls, the ride, the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my solid fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream I fled from that haunted and accursed pile, and I ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble, and went down the steps, I found the stone trapdoor immovable, but I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and I play by day amongst the catacombs of Nefret and Ka in the sealed and unknown valleys of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save for the unnamed feasts of Nitocris beneath the Great Pyramid. Yet, yet in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage, for although Nebenth has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century, and among those who are still men, This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame Stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass
0: Well, that wraps it up for another podcast. Uncle Frank,
2: what's the last thing? On August 4th, 1901, Louis Armstrong was born. He was an innovator and master of the jazz trumpet, and at one point was the best in his field. He moved from New Orleans to Chicago and in the 1920s made groundbreaking recordings, including the first scat singing put on record. When bebop came along, he didn't care for the trend, calling it Chinese music. Lewis stayed true to his original form, and instead of joining the new innovations, became a pop performer, loved by America. He appeared in film, television, and still gave live performances, singing in his distinctive voice, and still making magic with his trumpet.
0: And he also had the only number one jazz hit
2: on the popular charts, Hello Dolly. Very good. So tonight, we have a selection of the great man. So, this is Uncle Frank... And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month.